This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You can customize these books however you want. So, for instance, there, there isn't just one stamp at these visitor centers. They usually have multiple stamps. So if you only want the stamp that says Grand Canyon National Park and the date, that's great. But they usually have tons of other stamps. And they also have stickers that you can put in your passport book. Yeah, I don't do the embellishments. I don't, there's no <laughs> kitty cats uh, stamps. There's no dinosaur stamps. You don't bedazzle it. I, there's no bedazzling. <laughs> Mine's pretty bedazzled. Well, I also keep mine protected in a waterproof pouch. That, that's its home. <laughs> is, is it climate controlled? Yeah, yes, it's climate controlled. <laughs> You don't think that's a little OCD at all? <laughs> it's, it's OC. There's no D. <laughs> this is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast, our stories of adventures and misadventures as we travel to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Karen Smith. And I'm Matt Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Today is our monthly mailbag episode, and we have some really great... (laughs) And we have some really... (laughs) And we have some really great questions in store for you. In this episode, we'll be discussing a few gear-related questions, like what kind of backpacks do we carry? Why don't we use a hydration bladder in our packs? And do mosquito headnets really keep the bugs away? We also answer questions about driving a remote section of Capitol Reef National Park, why we don't share the same passport stamp book, and whether or not we'll be heading back to Alaska to hike the Chilkoot Trail this summer. Plus, we share some tips on which parks are good for young kids and tricks for older hikers like us. Like us. Matt, before we get started, I have to tell you some really exciting news that I just found out about like 15 minutes ago. Hmm. (laughs) Should I be sitting down? You are sitting down. (laughs) I know, but should I be sitting down? No, it's wonderful. One of our Facebook friends just sent us a DM and she sent us a link. You are not going to believe this. So in Hill City, South Dakota, where we're going to be in three days, the Chamber of Commerce just unveiled the world's largest smoky bear statue. 
Oh my goodness. Okay, we need to wrap this podcast episode up. I know. <laughs> I need to go pack. <laughs> can you believe that? It will be in walking distance from our cabin. We can go stand and stare so at Smokey whenever kind, we want. So what kind of statue is it? Well, it's interesting because the article that she sent me the link to said that seven artists worked on it and it's made of wood and they use chainsaws. So it's like a big chainsaw bear. And we like chainsaw art. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we do. So Smokey is sitting down and he has his legs splayed out in front of him, but he's still 30 feet tall. Wow. I know. He looks huge. Would it be weird if I wore all my Smokey memorabilia <laughs> when we go to see it? Like no. my hat and my t-shirt and my Smokey watch. I have a Smokey watch. I'm, I'm I gotta pack all that stuff. Yes, pack it all. We'll get some. We'll get some great pictures of you with Smokey. I am so excited. Very exciting. Yeah. So, uh, are, how are you going to hold his hand if he's thirty feet tall, I, sitting down? Uh, I don't think I can because when I looked at his hands, he ha- he also has a shovel laying across his lap, sort of, and one of his hands on a shovel, and I, I, it doesn't look conducive to me holding his hand okay. unfortunately well, we may have to clear the schedule <laughs> and, <laughs> spend some time with smoky we're going to be the group that other people who want to take a photo are saying okay folks time to move on <laughs> that's right get the dude with the smoky clothes out of here oh, i don't think i'm the one that's going to be having to be moved along <laughs> but i have to tell you one more thing that this article said and this is fascinating so why in hill city would they have a giant smoky bear you ask i know but <laughs> that's a good question why, why is that because their connection to smoky goes back to 1939 when 25 students from the hill city school district helped battle a wildfire in the black hills and because of that the u.s forest service awarded them recognition of being the only school in the nation with smoky bear as their mascot Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. All right. So this is, I'm even more excited now. About I know. Our, about our trip to the Black Hills. I know. We love Little Hill City and we didn't even know about the whole Smoky Bear connection. So I know now I'm psyched. Okay. But we have a whole mailbag episode to do. So we need to get going on okay, that. Let's do it quick. I know. And we have a lot of great questions. We're probably not going to have time, unfortunately, for any surprise pop quizzes or history no, channel. We now have Smokey on our minds. <laughs> That's right. But what about crying? Is, is there going to be any crying on this episode? You know, I haven't cried yet. <laughs> I might. I might. After this Smokey Bear news, I might be crying with joy. I see some tears of joy starting to form right there. <laughs> Okay, so let's get started. Uh, These first three questions, we received these after we did our 10 Essentials episode. So these were some follow-up questions that people had about some of the things that we talked about. Okay, let's. what's the first one? Okay, the first one is from Mary, and she wrote, I have listened to every podcast episode, but I do not remember you talking about the backpacks you use on your hikes. After listening to the 10 Essentials podcast, I think you must have very large backpacks. Maybe you could answer that on your next mailbag. Yeah, Mary, we were actually going to talk about our backpacks on the 10 Essentials um, episode, but we ran out of time. And unfortunately, that got left off. But we do have some things to say about our backpacks. And first of all, before I started ever carrying a backpack, back when you were carrying my stuff in your pack, Matt, I couldn't figure out why Matt had so many different backpacks. And then he explained that... 
backpacks are like purses. I don't you think can... I I don't think I use those words. Maybe I use you, the word. You thought I said that. Just so the listeners know, I did not say that backpacks are like purses. Well, what you said was that you need more than one because you carry a different backpack depending on how far the hike is. And so then I translated that into yeah, it's like a purse, right? A woman yeah, doesn't just have one purse. Translate everything into purses. <laughs> You need Just many, like, many purses. Like a, a dude needs many knives, <laughs> but those aren't like purses either. No. <laughs> so we do have very large backpacks, absolutely, but those big ones we use for backpacking trips. Overnight backpacking trips. And we really like the Osprey backpacks. We're not sponsored by Osprey, but we have, each of us have several Osprey packs. And I don't know what it is about those packs. They, they are lightweight. They're durable. The pockets are well thought out. But you know the thing I like the most about Osprey, and maybe not the reason you would choose a backpack, is they have really good zippers. Oh, I thought you were going to say you liked their logo because I really like their logo that's on the back of myself. But no, zippers are good. And that's how you buy purses, too. (laughs) And wine, if I like the label. (laughs) Okay, so zippers. Yeah, I never thought about that. I don't pay much attention to the zippers. You know what I pay attention to? The logo. Well, besides the logo, the pockets. Once I bought a backpack, this was when I was very inexperienced, and it wasn't a very expensive, it was just a day pack, but it did not have the water bottle pockets on the outside of the pack. And it was the biggest pain to have to, every time I wanted to drink a water, to have to stop, take off my backpack, dig out the water. So pockets are huge. Outside pockets for your water and inside pockets to put all the little things like your chapstick and all of that stuff that you don't want just jumbled up at the bottom. So pockets, pockets, pockets. I would say on this one, when it comes to backpacks, you're better off going smaller than you think you need. It seems like we fill up our backpacks, no matter how big or small they are, they, they're filled to the same level. And so uh, if you have a big backpack, you can fill it up with a lot of stuff. So here's the thing, too. It depends 100% on how far and where you are hiking. If you are just day hiking, you don't need a very big pack. Backpacks are sized in liters. Uh, a day pack can be anywhere from 20 to 35 liters. I actually have three, at least three packs. I have my really large one for backpacking trips for overnight. I have my just medium-sized day pack that I carry almost all the time on day hikes. And then I have this one that is unstructured and you can roll it up because sometimes when we're backpack camping, we want to have a day pack inside of our big pack so that we can just go on little day hikes and all we really need to carry is water. So I, I have three packs that I typically use depending on where we're going. And Matt, I think you have like six. <laughs> I don't I don't have six, but I think that's a good breakdown. It's having a nice, compact little one to take with you on overnight backpacks. Mm-hmm. And so then your day trips, you have a very lightweight pack. One more thing I will say, if you are buying your first backpack, if you can go to an outfitter store 
for instance, we have a lot of REIs here in Seattle. If you can go and buy it there and have the a person that's working there help you adjust it, that's kind of a big deal because a lot of people wear their backpacks incorrectly and they're not situated on their shoulders right and you know they hang too low on their backs and the weight isn't distributed. So even for a day pack, I think it, it's very helpful if you have somebody, someone who's an expert adjusting your pack for you. Yeah, I think that's good advice because we we have gotten advice from people who work at these stores that wasn't it wasn't intuitive. So we wouldn't have probably figured it out on our own. So on this one, definitely get some advice. That's right. So thanks for your question, Mary. You might not need multiple backpacks depending on where you're planning to hike. Maybe just one good day pack is is all you really need. Okay. So what's our next question? Our next question comes from Kim and Chad in Ohio. And their question is, we visit a lot of national parks and we often choose our visits at or after Labor Day weekend because the mosquito slash bug levels are reportedly lower at this time. We love to do long day hikes and backpacking and feel that hours and hours of mosquitoes surrounding us would ruin the experience. We'd love to branch out and take advantage of earlier summer hikes to extend our daylight hours. You've discussed the use of mosquito nets multiple times, but do they truly make the mosquito invasion tolerable? How much do mosquito slash bug levels Levels affect your hiking choices? That's a good question. Yeah, you'd, you would hate to think that you're making choices about uh, trails and when you're going based on bugs, although, you know, it is, it is a factor. And when the bugs are bad, it, it can ruin a hike. We should mention that there is a difference between mosquitoes and black flies. So in the Pacific Northwest, we have a lot of black flies, and when we talk about the bugs being bad, sometimes if we don't specify it on, on the episode, we might be talking about black flies. And those are that's a different deal than mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still bite, and the, their bites leave welts, the, the black flies, but they don't seem as aggressive as mosquitoes. Mosquitoes seem to... They'll bite you right through your clothes. Yes. And I don't think black flies do that. They're just annoying in swarms. So for us, we wait all year until July, until the snow melts in the mountains here in the Pacific Northwest to hike. So we wait patiently till about the 4th of July. And then we have such a small window of time where we can hike in the mountains. Basically, we have July and August and some of September. We can't just sit and wait until September to hike. So we have to get out in July no matter what, no matter how bad the bugs are. Mosquito nets over your head help tremendously because they're not going in your eyes and your nose and your mouth. But you have to have a brim. So the way a mosquito net works is if it's laying against your skin, the mosquitoes can still bite you. And so that's that's something to know about a mosquito mm-hmm. net. Unless you buy one with a built-in brim, you, you need a hat with a brim. Yeah. I was probably the last person on the planet who thought they would ever wear a head net. I fought it for a while. But now I whip that thing out because it does make a huge difference. The other thing, too, is you're going to want to be wearing long sleeves and long pants you know, with your hiking boots and your socks, you're going to want to cover the rest of you because obviously the head net is only, you know, working around your face and your neck. And we do that even on hot, hot hikes because 
These days, you can find outdoor clothes that are such thin fabrics that even though they're long pants and long sleeves, it looks like you're all covered up for wintertime, they're cool. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, like I said, though, mosquitoes often will bite right through those. Everyone has to decide what chemicals they want to use on their clothes and on their body. Mm -hmm. What we do, we use a product called Permethrin. It's a spray-on. You spray your clothes. You saturate your clothes with it on a on a line outside and let them fully dry. And we, we'll actually do this days before we go on a hike. And once that chemical's on your clothes, it does a really good job of keeping bugs away. It does a great job. And the other thing, too, if you're going to do that, you also want to make sure you spray your hat, you spray your backpack, And if you're going to be camping, you can spray your tent also. We douse everything in this, and it has made a huge difference in our lives. It works pretty good. (laughs) Yeah. And and if for some reason you have forgotten to do that or we've forgotten to do that, um, I'll spray bug spray on my clothes, on my skin. I know that people have issues with DEET, and I understand that. But there are times when uh, the bugs are so thick that I just go ahead and spray the 100% DEET on. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's almost a matter of, of survival. you got to be careful with that because it does melt some kind of either plastic or rubber. I know that the eye cups on my binoculars melted when I had DEET on mm-hmm. my face and I was holding <laughs> them up to, to my face. So you got to be careful with that. Yeah. Check out the permethrin because that is made for clothes. And, and like we said, we thought it was great. Last summer, we went to Glacier National Park and we were over at Bowman Lake and we were doing the Quartz Lake Loop Hike. And the mosquitoes were horrific. And this was, I think, the last day of June. One good thing is it does make you hike really fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep the air moving a yeah. little bit. But we stopped at the first campground on the lake just to have a snack and have some water and take in the view. And the bugs were so bad and they descended on us that we thought we would never, ever be able to camp in that because how could you? It would be so miserable. So answer to your question the bugs don't keep us from hiking in July, but they they do play a part in deciding if we're going to go camping and backpacking. Yeah, I will say, though, that we have had good luck with the permethrin when we've sprayed our tent. Mm-hmm. It's not like the bugs stay away from you, but I noticed that the one hike we did in the North Cascades when it was high vegetation, very wet, a lot of bugs, they still swarmed, but they never landed on us. Right. Uh, we never got bit. Those are some of our thoughts on insect protection. That's right. So I'd give it a chance. August is definitely better in most places than July. So I, I feel like you could move up out of September and, and try August and, and get yourself a head net. They're what, like about 10 bucks? <laughs> and they're super light. Wait, you can put them in a pack and, and never take it out because it, literally they weigh like one ounce. Yeah. So thanks for the question and happy trails, guys. Okay, our next question comes from Deb. And she asked... My question is about your 10 essentials list today when talking about carrying water. I have never heard you mention carrying a bladder in your backpack instead of extra water bottles. I think it's so much easier to drink while hiking, having a nozzle right at your reach. I'm just curious why you haven't mentioned bladders. Well, I I used to do that uh, when we first started hiking in the mountains about 20 years ago. You know, I had a camelback and it is super convenient. You put the little bite valve right next to your face and and you can drink. And it's probably a lot more healthy for you because you're drinking more water. The the problem I have is, is they're just a pain to clean. I've also found that they're a little hard 
while you're hiking to refill them. Like it's in your pack. And once your pack is filled with stuff, that bladder has got its own little home there. It's all fitted in your pack. And if you pull that thing out, uh, you're going to have to filter water or whatever to, to fill it up. So that's kind of a hassle. Put it back. It's kind of hard to get it back in the backpack. So anyway, that's just some inconvenience. Like I said, it's probably healthier for you because I think you you hydrate more when it's super convenient. When you stopped carrying the bladder and you told me your reasons, I thought that maybe you were just being a germaphobe because you are kind of a germaphobe. <laughs> but I, I looked it up and it's true that even if you only have water in, in the bladder, it can grow mold and mildew. I hope people realize that, that you do have to take steps to clean those out because bacteria grows in those. And you can scrub them out. They make these long, uh, skinny wire brushes and you can scrub them out and I think you can replace the bite valve. So uh, you can keep it clean. It's mm-hmm. just an extra step. Right. What we usually do with our water bottles is we leave them in the truck for a month or two after we're done. <laughs> and then when we can't find any more water bottles for our hikes, we go through the truck and we find them all and, and we put them in the dishwasher. You wouldn't want to do that with a bladder. No. That would, that would be gross. <laughs> so I guess the this short answer, Deb, is that we are lazy. And that is why we do not use the bladders in our backpacks. <laughs> but thank you for the question. Okay, moving on. Our next question is from Katie. And she wrote, my husband and I have a goal to visit all the national parks, too. We plan to do some of them with our kids, currently six and two years old. And I'd love to hear about which parks are good for kids and which ones might be better explored by adults. Oh, hmm. I have two words for you. Disney World. I thought you were going to say stay home. <laughs> no. Or one word, Disneyland. Uh, okay, first of all, Katie... Since your kids are under the age of 10, um, we'll mention a few parks that we think are good for that particular age range. Obviously, when your kids are older, you know, the things that kids are able to do and the things they're interested in in doing will change. So we'll talk about some parks for some younger kids. Okay. Okay. What are they? On the hikes that we go on, we see parents with their young kids. And I'd say usually about 20% of the time, these little kids, and I'm talking about like maybe four-year-olds, they're marching up with their backpacks and they're having a great time. And about, wouldn't you say, Matt, 80% of the time, the kids are having a meltdown, laying on the ground. Right. and the parents are having a meltdown. <laughs> yeah, we just we were just in Zion not too long ago, and we were up at the top by Scott's Landing, and and this mother had two toddlers, and you know, here's the thing, and I know I sound like a overly cautious parent here, but we see a lot of toddlers wandering around at the edge of cliffs and mm-hmm. things like that. I mean, the in all seriousness, the national parks aren't. Disneyland. They're not Disney World. Not at all. And some of the behavior we've seen is just frightening mm-hmm. and and kids can get hurt. So my recommendation is when you go to these parks, and we'll talk about some specific parks in a second, look for the nature walks. They're usually like a quarter of a mile to a mile. They're usually loops. They're usually also not a lot of elevation gain. Mm-hmm. Um, and those those are perfect because 
if your kid is going to have a meltdown, you're never that far from the parking lot. Right. Um, and so that's that's one tip. Um, yeah. Another one is there, there's a lot that you can just see from the car. And I know you want to get out with your kids. I, I get that and, and be out in it. But, you know, driving through Yellowstone, there are so many animal sighting stops where the bison are walking right by your car. Those yeah. are those are fantastic for kids. Yeah, Yellowstone is on our list for kids for a lot of reasons. You know, there are all the thermal features and the mud pots and the boardwalks that you can take them on. And there's the wildlife and there are some streams they can throw rocks in. I mean, I think we all of us who have kids know that kids will be kids and you have to tailor your trips to find things that kids like to do so that they love the national parks and they love your trip and they're not subjected to things that adults you know want to do and like to do and they're just going to like getting out and walking through the trees or whatever and throwing rocks and you know yeah, it, the things it, it doesn't do. take a lot <laughs> to impress young kids right which is a good thing that meaning yeah. there's a lot of places you can take them so what are, what are yeah. some of your specific recommendations? so we've mentioned this before we used to take our kids to rocky mountain national park that is a fantastic place for kids because not only do you have the entire national park of fun things to do but you have the town of estes park and if your kids are like ours I mean, Estes Park has those big giant slides and they have bumper boats and they have ice cream stores and they have just all kinds of fun family activities that you can do in addition to the national park. Yeah, we have great memories of the Rocky Mountain National Park and the various things that we did both in the parks and like you said, outside the parks. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, another great area, I think, is the Black Hills area because it just has it has a lot of variety. There are a lot of family friendly activities. Yes. You know, there's the mm-hmm. historic train. Custer State Park also has a bison herd. So they're from time to time close to the cars as you're driving through. There's some beautiful hikes. We never considered South Dakota when our kids were little. We just, it wasn't on our radar. But yeah, so many park units. You could take them to Wind Cave National Park and do the cave tour. That would be fun. There are also bison in Wind Cave. Uh, Of course, Mount Rushmore is there. Every kid should see Mount Rushmore. Uh, The Badlands are only an hour away. And um, like you said, Custer State Park, there's Jewel Cave. And again, similar to Estes Park, these little towns that surround Mount Rushmore have all kinds of family-friendly activities, you know, miniature golf and just really fun things to do. So I think in the Black Hills of South Dakota, you could find something for any age group, whether you have a a two-year-old or you have a 12-year-old or you have an (laughs) 82-year-old. Another great area would be the parks around Moab, Utah, because Uh. one, you have a few park options. You've got Arches, you have Canyonlands, Dead Horse Point State Park. So those are interesting places to see. There's also a lot of interesting uh, both petroglyphs and dinosaur footprints 
that are close by the the roads around Moab. Yeah, how cool is that to go see uh, dinosaur tracks? We went to see the the main one, and boy, is this big dinosaur footprint! I thought it was amazing. Yeah, it's a little it's a little <laughs> tricky to find. So you you want to go to the visitor center mm-hmm. in the town of Moab and ask where it is. I think it's it's off Potash Road, and there's it's a little bit of a hike, but not. Not too far. Off the parking lot. Yeah, climbing up this big hill. But also I I read, now we haven't done this, but somewhere in Moab there is a dinosaur museum where they have some actual dinosaur bones. And then they have created these life-size dinosaurs along a trail. So you can walk outside along this trail and your kids can see what these dinosaurs looked like. I mean, how cool would that be too? The other thing I wanted to say about arches too, I think something fun for kids Arches has 2,000 arches, and so you could make a checklist, right? And you could see a, a 2,000 how... arch okay, checklist? Well... <laughs> is that what you're suggesting? Yes, this you is, need to go for several the episode, months. <laughs> episode goes off track. No, it's... but, you know, have a checklist of how many arches your child can find. I, I want to do that. Okay. <laughs> and when you go to arches, don't miss. There is a an arch called Sand Dune Arch. Remember that, Matt? Yes, that was a good arch Mm -hmm. because it's kind of like a beach. It's a beach setting without the water. Mm -hmm. And there were kids with shovels and buckets. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I think Arches is a very family-friendly place to go with little kids. Right. Another place I think would be cool, I would have probably liked to see this when I was a kid, is the huge trees at Sequoia and Kings Canyon. Yes. Uh, now, I guess every tree looks huge to a small child, but uh, <laughs> it, it's pretty impressive to see the sequoias. And, and there are some trails there that are paved mm-hmm. and fairly easy to take toddlers on or, or small kids who aren't going to want to hike five miles, right? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. this, to see some of these spectacular trees. And Sequoia just has... The classic national park feel to it. It does. I think out of all the parks, it feels like your quintessential national park. And who wouldn't want to show their their children the largest trees in the world? So that I think both of those parks together would be a fantastic vacation destination. Yep. And then finally, my favorite, and you knew I was going to say this, Matt, is Carlsbad Caverns. Please take your children to Carlsbad. Yeah, take them down. Take them down in the hole. Okay. Get, get them a headland. Yeah, and it's also a great place to go in the summer because it's like 55 degrees down in the, in the caves, so it's nice and cool. The cave formations will blow their little minds, and it's just an amazing place for families. The other thing I would suggest is you can sign up ahead of time for the King's Palace tour. There were children on that tour to see a, a separate cave that's also beautiful. And yeah, you could get them some little headlamps. And I think Carlsbad Caverns is a fantastic place for kids. It is a good place in the heat of summer, mm-hmm. I have to say, because it's natural air conditioning down there. That's- yeah, you actually need to bring a light jacket. Yes. Even when it's 100 degrees outside. They will absolutely love Carlsbad. And then while you're there, you should also visit White Sands. Now, that is not a good place to be in the heat of the summer. So you'd want to go early in the morning. But White Sands, you can get those little uh, saucers and kids can sled on the dunes. Right. They can roll in the dunes. They can dig in the sand. It's a fantastic place for kids. Yeah. Again, be careful there in in the heat of the summer because it gets hot quick. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, Katie, the, the second part of your question, the which parks to avoid, I think the list is too long there <laughs> to, to start naming. But, I mean, you know your kids. So if you do the research and you look at the all the park websites have a list of called things to do, um, you know, and you just look at those lists and see what your kids would like. But I think um, a lot of the places that are really crowded and that have strenuous hikes, you know, maybe maybe you want to save those for when your kids are teenagers. I would keep them away from Horseshoe Bend. Be careful when you take them to Grand Canyon because there's a lot of steep drop-offs. Oh, yeah, for sure. But kids, you know, kids should see the Grand Canyon. Yeah, I I wouldn't take very small children, probably. I'd wait because they're not even going to appreciate it, right? Right. But surely once they get to middle school, junior high age, then yes, the, the Grand Canyon is a must. But Anyway, it's wonderful that you're taking your kids to the parks and and what great memories you're making for them. Katie, thanks for the question. All right, Karen, what is our next question? Okay, this question is from Nicole, and she wrote to us, it sounds like either from your books or the pod, thanks for saying that, Nicole, or the pod, that you each have your own passport book. What's the reason you each have your own? About 10 years ago, when we first started visiting the parks, my husband got a passport book. And now I'm a little jealous I didn't get one as well. I'm thinking of getting my own at our next park visit, but then his book will always have more stamps than mine. Story of my life, Nicole. And then at the end of her email, she said, we always travel to the parks together, and it sounds like you do as well. So I'm I'm curious on why you need two passport books. Well, it's a very simple answer. It's because (laughs) when I first got my passport book, Karen made so much fun of me, (laughs) relentless making fun of for months and months that when she finally realized that it was a good idea and she wanted one, there was no chance that I was going to share it. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Matt got his first passport book on our first trip to the Grand Canyon, and this was years before we decided to visit all the national parks. So we did not know about the passport book. One of the rangers in the Grand Canyon Visitor Center told Matt about it, and she showed him where it was, and she showed him where the stamp was. And I I thought it was for kids. I thought she was humoring you, that this was something that kids do. So that's why I was laughing at you. I didn't realize that it – I didn't realize – What an amazing thing it was. (laughs) (laughs) So I got mine, and Mm. and I didn't collect that many stamps before you realized that you needed to have one, too. But, I mean, I have maybe, I don't know, five or ten stamps Mm -hmm. ahead of you. Yeah. But what I like about this is that they're dated. And so Karen can collect stamps as long as she wants, but I will, (laughs) mine will still be, I will have proof that they're older than hers. (laughs) Yeah. But here are a couple other reasons, Nicole, why I think you should have your own is because you can customize these books however you want. So for instance, there, there isn't just one stamp at these visitor centers. They usually have multiple stamps. So if you only want the stamp that says Grand Canyon National Park and the date, that's great. But they usually have tons of other stamps and they also have stickers that you can put in your passport book yeah, i don't do the embellishments I don't, there's no <laughs> kitty cats uh stamps there's no dinosaur stamps you don't bedazzle it I, there's <laughs> no bedazzling mine's pretty bedazzled well i also keep mine protected in a waterproof pouch that that's its home is, is it climate controlled yeah yes it's climate controlled <laughs> 
<laughs> you don't think that's a little OCD at all? <laughs> it's, it's OC. There's no D. <laughs> no, I got to keep it protected from moisture and cookie crumbs and stray fingerprints, all that stuff. Are you saying mine has cookie crumbs and fingerprints? Oh, yours had cookie crumbs and fingerprints before you got your first stamp. Okay, and just one more reason, Nicole, to have your own passport book. Also, we do travel to all the parks together, but there have been several times when, like, for instance, I took my mom to Acadia National Park, and I got another stamp there that Matt doesn't have, even though he does have an Acadia one. And Matt has stopped a place or two when he's been... I've had business trips where uh, we went to Alcatraz. I took... Uh Client to Alcatraz one time and happened to have my passport book with me. So I right. got that. And so maybe, Nicole, there'd be some opportunities for you to catch up with your husband. Oh, no, you'll never <laughs> catch up because there's dates on it. And, and I can show that there was a period of time when you thought it was stupid to get the stamps. I don't think it's too late for you, Nicole. I would buy one. If anyone is wondering, they cost about $10. They're in all the national park visitor centers and gift shops. And one more note, be sure to, in the front cover, put your name and your telephone number. So if you ever lose it or leave it at the stamp station, somebody can get it back to you. I think these things are very valuable to people. Yeah, it's nice to look through it from time to time and remember all the times, especially since they have the dates, you can remember what time of year you were there and, and mm-hmm. what year you were there, and, and it helps you remember the trip. So, yeah. Yes. Nicole, you should have your own. Absolutely. All right. Our next question comes from Victoria in Tennessee, and she asked us, do you have your return trip to the Chilkoot scheduled for this summer? Mm, I wish we did. I know. What I wish more than anything else is that we had done the Chilkoot a second time the very next summer after we did it the first. So we, we did a whole episode on this, episode number 12, our misadventures in the Klondike National Historical Park. So we tried to backpack the entire 33-mile Chilkoot Trail. It starts in the United States, in Alaska, and then it continues on into Canada. And this, just in case people don't know, this is the historic trail that a lot of the gold rushers took to get to the Klondike back in 1897, 1898, when gold was discovered up there by Dawson City. And we tried to get up there You'll have to listen to episode 12 as to why we didn't make it. But anyway, the next year, we could have gone. I know. But we kind of felt like, oh, we got other things to do. It'll always be there. We'll we'll go back sometime. We went in 2018, and, and we got turned back. We should have gone in 2019. I think one of the reasons we didn't is because we had our big Grand Canyon 16-day dory trip in September, and we thought it might just be too much to add on. So we had plans to go back in 2020. And in fact, in January of 2020, we booked everything. We booked our our campsites and our hotels before and after and the train ride to get out and the boat ride to get to Skagway and our flights to get to Juneau. There's a lot of logistics involved in this. We had everything booked in January of 2020. And then you all know what happened in March of 2020. Right. And so they closed the Canadian border uh, and it's still closed. And it does not look like in 2021 it's going to open. Well, I I don't think they know exactly when it's going to open, but 
Mm-hmm. Uh, if they open it, it'll probably be a mad dash for camping reservations. Anyway, so we're probably not, well, definitely not going to do it in 2021. 2022. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if hopefully yeah. the borders open in 2022. <laughs> but if we learned anything from this, it's that we shouldn't put stuff off thinking that it will always be there. We should have gone in 2019, never dreaming, of course, what was going to happen. And now, you know, we're looking at three years later, we're looking at 2022. So I think that's, that's something that we should all keep in mind, right? If there's something you want to do, don't put it off. Just just do it. It might not be there forever. <laughs> Seize the day. Yeah. Thanks, Victoria, for checking in with us about the Chilkoot. Okay, our next question comes from Lisa in Colorado. I have a question about Capitol Reef National Park. This is the last park in Utah I haven't explored, and I was wondering if you've ever driven on the Cathedral Road and the Hartnett Road. We're going at the end of August, so the River Ford shouldn't be a problem. Many people suggested we go that way so you don't have as far to backtrack if you can't get through the river. We are from Colorado, so off-roading is not something we are new to. We drive an F-250 four-wheel drive. Well, Lisa, we had plans to drive those roads, but at the last minute, we decided not to for a couple of reasons. So for those of you who aren't familiar with this, uh, these roads in Capitol Reef, this is a really remote section of the park, and it doesn't have any services, it doesn't have any water, and there is no cell phone reception out there. But people go out there to see these massive monoliths called Temple of the Sun and Temple of the Moon. And we've seen photos. They are amazing looking. And it's been on my list for a long time. This dirt road is a 58-mile loop. Now, the park says it takes about six to eight hours to complete. Anyone wanting to drive this road is going to need a pretty high ground clearance four-wheel drive vehicle. Um, And and if it's wet, it's impassable uh, after storms. And Mm -hmm. you want to have some off-road experience if you're going to go back there. That's right. When we were planning to do it, uh, I forget, what month were we there that we tried to do that? Was that October? Yes, it was October. Um, mm-hmm. So a couple of things. First of all, the the river crossing, that's a bit of a trick. I thought it would be a shallow river that just crossed the road and you'd kind of you know make your way through it. You go down a fairly steep entrance into the river that you have to watch the clearance of your truck. I mean, it dropped maybe three or four feet, I'm guessing. And I couldn't really tell what that would translate into um, clearance for my truck to see if you know it would hit the skid plate or we get high centered. Um, so I was a little concerned about that. And then the river the river was deep. We couldn't see mm-hmm. the bottom of it. No. So I didn't want to I didn't want to put the truck in, in in a river that I couldn't see the bottom of. It wasn't very wide, but you go into the river, you immediately take a, a 90 degree right hand turn. So you got that. Uh you go down, I don't know, maybe a hundred feet, and then you take a perpendicular uh left hand turn to get out. So that with the fact that I couldn't see the bottom of the river, I just thought that that was a little too tricky for us. Well, Um, yeah, and we had a brand new, we had just bought our Toyota 4Runner literally like two months before. And we looked at that and we thought, "Mm, no. No, because I don't want to flood the interior of a brand new truck. And I think that had we been able to see the bottom of the river and determined, okay, it's, it's shallow enough, 
we probably would have done it if we had somebody else with us. Like if if Craig and Aya were with us mm-hmm. and they have a forerunner also with the winch, we could pull each other out if we had to. So we were by ourselves. But that's not the only thing. Well, no, because after we looked at the river and then when we decided that we couldn't do it, we figured – so that's Hartnet Road um, and that's the beginning of the loop. Most people do it clockwise. We decided we could go in at Cathedral Road where you usually come out go in Cathedral Road, go and see the Temple of the Sun and the Temple of the Moon, and then go back out Cathedral Road and just skip the river crossing. But the Capitol Reef National Park has a road status phone number that you can call, this recorded message, and they'll tell you about the condition of all the roads in the park. So the day before, we called the number, and they said that the road wasn't closed, but they strongly discouraged anybody from trying to drive it because people were getting stuck in the sand. And that's not a thing to take lightly because we've we've been on trips in Utah before where we've seen people get stuck in sand that's not very deep. We've even actually on this last trip, we pulled some folks out mm-hmm. of the sand. So again, we decided we weren't going to chance it. We probably would have, again, if we were with somebody else. Sure. Because you've a, got that snap strap, man. We've got the snap strap, which, by the way, I've used now. So it's I know how to use it. Uh, I mean, you just have to be careful that you're not just cruising down the road and you both get stuck. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the problem is out there, as we said, it's so remote that if you get stuck – I mean, look, somebody could come by in an hour and help you out, and somebody could come by in three days. So definitely, if you try it, Lisa, you guys need to have a plenty of water with you and food and maybe some blankets just in case you get stuck and you have to spend the night. You do have to, if you're by mm-hmm. yourself, you have to be able to self-rescue. You can't you can't figure on rangers coming by to, to check the road. But it's still on our list, and uh, we, we hope to do it on our next visit to Utah. Good luck, Lisa. Let us know how it goes. And get a snack strap. (laughs) Definitely. Our last mailbag question comes from Jeff and Carol. And they wrote to us, do you guys have any advice, tips, or hints for those of us hikers who have made many trips around the sun to help keep us going? We are not a whole lot younger than you. We take about four hiking slash outdoorsy trips a year and are looking to retire and travel a little more in a few years. We love road tripping, hiking, exploring, and camping, but we're definitely feeling it now that we are past 50. Wow, 50. <laughs> That's so old. <laughs> first of all, my, my first comment is 50 and 50s is not old. <laughs> so get out there and do it anyway. Uh, I, know, I Sometimes I think we're feeling it too. But here's what I have concluded. Sometimes when I'm feeling tired or achy, as you get older, it's easy to think it's because you're old. But I can remember back when I was 30 feeling tired and achy. And I don't think it always has to do with age. I think that's one of the first things that comes to mind. That's true. We have seen people and continue to see people on almost every hike we take, including strenuous ones, who are easily in their 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. So, and look, I get it. It's a real thing. But uh, I think you can... You can go a long time still doing this strenuous stuff well that, past your 50s. Yeah, I think the tip is don't slow down. It's a slippery slope. Find harder hikes to do and appreciate the fact that you're sore at the end. You know, we we are 
Oh, here we, here are, we go. We're really feeling the clock ticking. And so we are trying to get out and do as much as we can and see as much as we can. Because look, it is going to happen to everybody. Everyone's going to get to a point where there is an injury they can't get beyond or there's an, a, an illness or a disease or something will happen, right? That is inevitable. So I would say as long as you can, get out there and do it and relish relish the aches and pains and have fun and explore and don't slow down. <laughs> yeah, I think the advice about taking on harder things is, is a good one. And also, um, don't leave a lot of time between strenuous activities. If you can, even long walks every day, because it is true. The older you are, I think it's harder to get in shape. It takes longer to get in shape for a strenuous activity. Whereas if you're in your 20s, you might be able to go out and do two or three strenuous hikes and you're ready for that big climb. Whereas, you know, you're in your 50s and 60s, it might take 15 or 20 rounds up Heart Attack Hill (laughs) to get in better shape. Or 100. (laughs) That's right. But our number one tip, something we found that works wonders is every time we go on a hike, we make sure we have a couple of beers on ice in our truck as well as folding chairs and our flip-flops and a big box of (laughs) Cheez-Its. Yes, and when our hike is over, we take off our hiking boots and put the flip-flops on. We plant ourselves in those chairs, and we have a beer. (laughs) And we eat Cheez-Its because you need to have salt. Right, right. There's got to be some kind of nutrition in Cheez-Its, right? (laughs) Salt. Anyway, that's our number one tip. That will do wonders for your aches and pains. You'll feel 20 quickly. (laughs) That's our secret. Always have some cold beer waiting. Yeah. That's our pep talk, Jeff and Carol, and we will see you guys out on the trails. Okay, that kind of wraps up today. No quizzes or history channel. You did cry. Good, we got that in. It's been a few episodes, so we're back on the crying. Now, this mailbag episode is our last mailbag before we go on our summer break, which will be mid-June. But if you have questions that can wait to be answered in the fall, please send those to us at mattandkarensmith at gmail.com, or you can message us on social media. On Facebook, we are Dear Bob and S. And on Instagram, we are Matt and Karen Smith. There you go. Thank you for all of the great questions. We always have fun with our mailbag episodes. We love mailbag. Yeah. <laughs> okay, everybody, have a great summer. We have a few more episodes before our midsummer break. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, send us the questions if you have them. Thank you all for listening to this episode, and a special thanks to all our friends in Germany who have been tuning in week after week. Danke. I don't know if I said that right. Is that, isn't that how you say thank you in German? Well, I hope so. But if it's not, you just offended our German listeners. <laughs> we appreciate all of you who've left us such wonderful ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, bringing us closer and closer to my goal of 750. Okay. How many more do you need? Oh, just about 90 or so. Nine? You need nine, nine more? 90. Oh, 90. Okay, folks, let's let's get her to the 750 mark, please. If you haven't read our Dear Bob and Sue books yet, they're packed with information and stories about our visits to public lands with a lot more details than we can cover in a podcast episode. 
There are three of them in the series, and you can buy the paperback, the Kindle version, or the audiobook on Amazon.com. Just search for Dear Bob and Sue. Our show is produced by our very talented team at Puddle Creative in Portland, Oregon. Our cover artwork is by the designers at Expert Subjects, and our theme music is by Will West. In addition to seeing Smokey Bear in a few days, don't forget, Matt, that we have a cave tour to look forward to at Wind Cave. Yeah, I can't I can't wait. <laughs> but if for some reason you can't find me, you might want to check the Claw Antler and Hide store in Custer. I might be there. Or, With all the little chipmunks and raccoons that are dressed yeah, up. Or sitting on Smokey's lap in Hill City. Yeah. <laughs>